This week on the show, we are going back in time, back to Haworth, and back to the that Airbnb that you scored, which was amazing. Oh my gosh. Did it make up for the second Airbnb? Because honestly, yes. that second one was like... It was fine. I've stayed in worse. It, it was, was fine. It was definitely it was like haunted, but F. it was fine. Yeah. Okay. We are the podcast that pits Jane Austen against all three Bronte sisters. I am your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austen. True story. And I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte. Except, look, this is a really good visual gag we've got. Yeah. Oh! (laughs) Yeah! And uh, today's episode, we will be talking all things Emily Bronte and trying to get kind of behind the mind. Ooh, yeah. that was a good... Yeah. I, was, I didn't even write that. You didn't, that was no. We didn't write anything today, guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with Lauren and I, we have four Emily experts. Wait, can you just caveat that I'm not an Emily expert? Isabel, you can tell people what you want when you introduce yourself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... After you, go ahead, introduce yourselves. Who are you? Team Bronte are like Avengers. (gasps) Team Bronte. Yes. Yes. I'm about to accept by that. Oh, do I have to start? Yeah. So I am Amy Robottom and I'm the curatorial assistant here at Bronte Parsonage Museum, which means that I get to help out with all the labels and the collection care and all the exciting things that everybody wants to do. Um, Yes, I get to do that. Meet Bronte experts, proper ones. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not a Bronte expert <laughs> I'm a ma- mad deranged fan but also I'm writing a graphic novel about the Brontes and their juvenilia yeah. so I am a Bronte expert well it's I feel like well I'm becoming like an amateur you know enthusiast yes I'm an amateur enthusiast <laughs> <laughs> and your name is Isabel Greenberg. (laughs) (laughs) She has books that are available. (laughs) Look her up on Amazon. I'll I'll self-promote myself later in the episode. Okay, okay, good. (laughs) Try and stop me. Uh, So I'm Clara Callaghan. I'm a lecturer in English at Loughborough University and I uh, teach and research 19th century uh, writing uh, particularly the Brontes, and I published Emily Bronte Reappraised, which came out earlier this year. And I'm Lauren Lucy, and I am the audience development officer in charge of events at the Bronte Passage Museum. So I get to work with writers, artists, and anybody who's really got an interest in the Brontes and put together our programming, uh, our program really, um, with all kinds of things going on, including stuff like this. Yeah, anyone who's interested in the Brontes and Hannah. Right, Amy? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. I love the tension between Hannah and Amy. <laughs> I said earlier today that when we did the um, Gaskell episode last mm-hmm. year, that I gave Hannah the finger and she didn't notice because I, like, I don't think you did anyway. I sat like that for ages. Elevating the debate. So, oh, by the way, I sassed you just like just yeah. in case you didn't know. Well, you didn't <laughs> I suspected. Yeah. So um, this year on Bonnets at Dawn, we did like an Emily, uh, deep dive into Emily. So we had a bunch of Emily 200 episodes. 
And what we did is we recorded these episodes and then we sent them on to artists because Hannah and I actually, in our other life, we um, are graphic novel editors, something like that, <laughs> comic yeah. book editors. And so we sent these episodes to some artists and they drew some Emily-inspired art. So if you're actually here, you get to see some Emily art today. Um, the first one, though, this is all Isabel from her book. This is a sneak preview. I don't know if you want to say anything about your work, but... Um, that's Emily in the, in, my, in the guise of being a chief genie before she leaves behind Glastown. Mm-hmm. So that's where she's dressed like a Napoleonic soldier. I, uh, yeah. I love it. It's good. It's good. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. She'll be celebrating her AGA though. First off now, okay. So the thing about Emily, very mysterious. We have very few things left of Emily, right? So what do we have left yeah. that we can look to that we can sort of try to, you know, interpret her personality? So as you said, we don't have a lot and it meant that, um, when it came to curating this year's exhibition, it was quite difficult. Um, It wasn't like we had so many things. Um, And part of the reason for that is because she just wasn't famous in her lifetime. She didn't have anybody that was like a significant other like Charlotte had who kept her things. Um, But we do have, we're very fortunate to have a lot of her poetry manuscripts, Mm -hmm. um, which were conserved last year as well, which meant that we can I was going to say scatter them liberally around the museum, <laughs> but that's not what I meant. Um, because it used to be in one volume, which meant that you could only look at one at a time, but now we're very lucky in that we can scatter them liberally <laughs> through display cases. Um, and we have some of, quite a few of the drawings, actually, although we know that there are others that exist that are lost. Um, and the exhibition this year asked for contemporary responses to um, her quite a lot of artwork. Mm. and things yeah. yeah it was items that particularly spoke to whoever we'd invited to respond so yeah. some people really kind of gravitated towards the poetry or the artwork or I think we've got her we've got um stockings up there oh as yeah. Well. So, yeah yeah let's not talk about stockings yeah <laughs> not really give a huge amount of insight other than that she wore stockings but things like the diary papers yeah. um which are obviously like time capsules of what the Brontes were doing and we kind of say it is quite boring to hear about what was happening in the kitchen on any given day, but actually mm-hmm. um, they do tell us a lot about their daily lives. Yeah, but unlike, yeah. unlike with kind of Charlotte and Anne, who you kind of, you can work exclusively from the extant material and kind of get an idea of the personalities yeah. mm-hmm. through letters and, and kind of other sort of relatively confessional writing that they produced um with emily like her letters are really transactional it's mm-hmm. like dear eleanor Sue, yes charlotte can stay with you longer <laughs> yours emily like you can't build a personality around her um not that's kind of supported by the text so unlike with charlotte where there's eons of material mm-hmm. going off to mary mm-hmm. taylor or eleanor C, um with emily she's kind of a human question mark it's a good phrase yeah <laughs> So then, Isabel and Claire, as authors who are writing about her life, what objects and like writings really captured your interest when you were working on your books? You can you can choose who's going to tackle that first. Yeah, you can go first. Okay. <laughs> um, well, my main because I was writing about the juvenilia, I wanted to my main when I started the book, I couldn't actually decide whether I wanted to tell it from the point of view of Charlotte and Glastown or Emily and Gondal. And in the end, I went with Charlotte because although I felt like I liked 
the idea of Gondol more, and in a way, visually, I felt like it would be more interesting to explore. I also felt really weird about trying to invent a personality for Emily. Mm -hmm. So I went with Charlotte in the end. But um, can I talk about Fanny Ratchford? Yeah. I've been waiting for this moment. I'm really obsessed with Fanny Ratchford, who, you can jump in if I'm wrong here, was a was one of the first people to try and tackle the juvenilia. Is that is that correct? She and she tried yeah, she tried to construct a kind of coherent narrative from what was left of um, Emily's world gondol. Which obviously Aswell. isn't a lot. Yeah. And, and so she she's got this book where she pieces together all of the poems into an incredibly satisfying narrative, which I really like, but I also suspect <laughs> isn't entirely and I've like I was looking through it and I was like, oh wait, this is this poem is all about the moment when she leaves a baby on a mountainside because she's too ambitious to have a baby and she leaves it to be exposed. But then I was looking in this other book of Emily's poetry and it's like about something completely different. So I feel like my love for Fanny is maybe. We went for a walk this morning and all yeah. Isabel could talk about on the moors was you've got to hear this poem about. Uh, this woman just leaving this kid out to die. <laughs> it's great. 10 out of 10, would recommend. And we got back to the cottage and the first thing he did was like, where's my book, Hannah? Listen to this dead baby poem. Yeah. I, like, I, wanted, I wanted to great. read it on the moors, but then I couldn't find it in the complete works. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's got to be in here somewhere. <laughs> um, we had to just do the one about the yeah, book. We didn't yeah, we did another one. Yeah. But when you mentioned it to me, yesterday, mm. the first thing I said was, yeah, she's the one that misread something. And then <laughs> completely wove something out of it that's wrong. Maybe she's a problematic fave. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway, Fanny Ratchford is my current hero. um, So, um, I guess, for me, what captured, obviously, you know, reading Emily's poetry or Wuthering Heights, you know, kind of give you a really powerful voice and that kind of captured my interest. But in terms of when I came to write about... um, what kind of captured me was not actually anything of Emily's by Emily, it's what other people have done and said about Emily. So some of the other kind of um, biographies and other things, like, like Fanny Ratchford, you know, people have taken what we have and tried to create an Emily out of it. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, it was trying to kind of think about that and connect those to objects and writings and manuscripts mm-hmm. and diary papers and try to think about them together and think about, uh, does that give us a coherent narr- um, you know, narrative about Emily or not? Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't really answer your question, but that's... <laughs> I don't think it answers the question either, to be honest. <laughs> no, but that's good. I mean, she's an enigma. We can't... Mm-hmm. We're all trying to do that, right? So I think that works, actually. But then I think, as, as you said, like, the artwork is really kind of valuable, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a huge insight into her yeah. abilities, and yeah. not just as a writer, but how it fed into it. Yeah. And yeah, so I, was, I, I did go and look at a lot of the art. And just was thinking about, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't draw really at all. So, but someone who was really skilled in the way as Monte's <coughs> work, it tells you a lot about her in terms of thinking about the detail and the time she spent with things, mm-hmm. and how she was really trying to. A lot of her her images are trying to capture moments. It feels like mm-hmm. scenes. Um, <coughs> so um, that kind of was made me think a little bit about about her my interest in thinking about who she was through that so. yeah I was really confused that people sometimes like throw shade on her ability as a artist yeah. she's like I'm like wow she can draw better than me and I'm yeah. like supposed to be you know yeah 
We've got items in the collection that were originally attributed to Charlotte, and then somebody's looked at it. Well, I say somebody, the experts, Christine, Alexander, and Jess Ellis, looked at it and went, no, this is obviously Emily because it's good. Like, um, yeah. But yeah, she is really, I mean, really talented and, uh, you know, really detailed as well. It's just weird that people kind of thought, like, if that's the standard that's rubbish, then yeah. that's a really high standard to call rubbish. I Best mean, artist do you think maybe... Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. I'm just going to put it Sorry. out. Sorry. She's better, better than... Yeah. Better than Brown. Yeah, better than Brown. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, entirely. I also think, like, that I... And I don't know if this is a massive misreading on my part, but I do think Wuthering Heights has some of the funniest bits in it. Like, oh, yeah. like yeah. it's... And not in this... Like, there's funny kind of interesting dialogue in like Jane Eyre of course like you know and I'm not saying Charlotte's not funny but it's quite oh, Charlotte's not she's not she has a moment some of them not in the unintentionally she's got some great like kind of pithy bits of back and forth between mm-hmm. you know in their like banter scenes or whatever so I don't really I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of her letters rather than oh, yeah, she's not yeah. she's not so funny there no I think she's funny in her letters okay but I might be wrong. <laughs> I just spent too much time with them all and I'm like, Emily, knock, knock. Who's that? It's a publisher. I've come to publish your work that you didn't want published. <laughs> <laughs> Is that? No. Oh, what about the time she wrote that really horrible review to Emily when Emily was dying? Yeah. 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 It's funny. You're right. She's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Funny girl. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just feel sorry for Charlotte now. But I, I do think Emily might be funnier. Like, there's, there was, there's a bit in Wuthering Heights where... Um, Lockwood asks um, he's going to the kitchen he's like oh is that your favourite cushion or something and oh, then it turns yeah. out to be yeah. yeah, like a pile of dead rabbits yeah. that just made me laugh so much like because it's such a funny like just <laughs> weird visual moment like oh what a nice cushion I love yeah. Hannah's face just like, like <laughs> I remember when I was studying Wuthering Heights at A-level my teacher was like okay I want you guys to act out what's happening in this moment in this opening oh, scene and we weird. were like what the hell we were all kind of like no we, mm. we, we, we kind of chew on our sleeves yeah. and stare at the ground but if you act out it's you know you've got Lockwood in this room and then he starts pulling faces at the dogs like yeah. you realise actually that's a ridiculously absurd narrative that's happening yeah. and you don't realise it because you're reading it going well this is a classic so it must be quite stuffy and then you realise this is weird foppish bloke like gurning mm. at dogs yeah. <laughs> 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 I agree really I think there are some really like, yeah. dark moments of humour like the, the bit when um, uh, Heathcliff throws uh, throws apple sauce um, we love this thing. Actually, we love this like, what's um, the apple sauce thing exactly <laughs> it's, it's like the nearest thing he can get to kind of attack um, you know, to throw it kind of Hindley to kind of right. bring him down when they're kind of young, like the young teenagers. And Heathcliff's just been kind of done up by Nelly and he's feeling really kind of like a peacock, but he looks great and he's really excited. And then he kind of gets brought down a few levels. So he, Emily writes it as he picks up his apple sauce and throws it. And you think of all the things to pick up. <laughs> Is apple sauce. That's just a dark humour there that's just really... Because she could have had him pick up a carving knife. It could have been anything, yeah, exactly. And And she was like, apple sauce. Apple sauce, yeah. Yeah. But if you think about the diary paper, that's all about apples. Apples, yeah. 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 Charlotte made better pies. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about Wuthering Heights is that it's really funny if you like jokes about non-conformist Anglicanism. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> <laughs> great review. <laughs> Big demographic out Perfect for like there's some jokes that might have gone over my head. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another reading, Isabel. <laughs> Another day. <laughs> so now, um, we know Emily didn't have a lot of friends. Can you guys tell us a little bit about her relationship with her family, particularly Anne? That's where we're going here with this. So the twins. The twins. Mm-hmm. I did once read a theory by uh, Winifred Geron that, um, I don't think that's how it's pronounced, by the way. I just like to say it like that. Um, that when Emily realised that Anne was unwell because she'd always been sickly, that she just shut down and was like, I can't bear to live without her, so I'll just... Not live first, <laughs> yeah, um, which is horrendous. But yeah, they were very close. And I always say that um, Charlotte wanted to be Emily's friend and like the best mm-hmm. sister. It was like, like me more, but in terms of like a spiritual understanding or whatever, it was definitely Anne that she was close to. I always find it interesting that like, we know as children, Charlotte and Bramwell were really, really close, creating mm-hmm. anger, and then you've got. Emily and I'm creating Gondol. And I sometimes think that when Charlotte kind of gets to sort of semi-adulthood and realises that Bramwell's left her behind because he's got freedom yeah. to go into the world that she doesn't have, and also he's left her behind because he's found, you know, other pursuits, be they, you know, drinking or drugs or whatever, she Some kind life. of was like, oh, I've not got anyone anymore. And mm-hmm. she kind of just glommed onto Emily in a weird way. Oh, mm-hmm. I always thought it was because Emily was cool. Well, yeah. I do think Emily was cool. I think absolutely. I have a cool young sister. Yeah. Who's cooler than me. And I'm always <laughs> like... She doesn't kind of do the same thing with that, you know, who I think was no. an incredible character in her own way, but it's all about Emily, you know, Anne is just younger and she writes tolerable poetry and all this sort of thing, you know, but Emily, she's just like straight into it and so much of the kind of contemporary narratives around the two of them are kind of pitting them against one another. Mm-hmm. Like, I know we've got Team Bronte and Team Austin, but you've got Team Charlotte and Team Emily, Emily and yeah, yeah, this yeah. desire to kind of put Charlotte down at the expense of Emily because she didn't understand her or she narr- you know, destroyed her poetry or whatever and you get we get people coming around the museum don't we Amy kind of going Charlotte just wrote her narrative didn't oh, she Charlotte yeah, burned yeah, the poems yeah. and it's like what actual historical fact are you basing that on and we <laughs> don't know but they are convinced with a kind yeah. of a burning fiery passion that Charlotte destroyed all of that mm-hmm. like I'm not a massive mm-hmm. Charlotte fan but people sometimes feel really kind of mm, possessive yeah, yeah. I feel really mm-hmm. sorry for Charlotte because I think it's much easier to like Emily because you don't have any evidence you don't know that anything she's about her. Yeah. 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 you know you've got all this stuff about Charlotte and you're like oh Charlotte what, what an awful person but it was really hard to be yeah to do what she did and she definitely really made some weird you know, I feel sorry for Charlotte. But we judge Charlotte based on a lot of the, the letters she wrote to Ellen and Mary. Like, if somebody judged me based entirely on my WhatsApp conversations with my closest yes. friends, yes. I would look like yeah. a terrible person. Well, yeah. If anyone oh. read my and Lauren's conversations, we yeah. would just, like, burn it down. They wouldn't want to keep a hold of my stockings. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to think about them. Imagine yeah. somebody having a pair of your warm tights. Yeah, yeah. these ones for the collection. You can do, like, little bonnets at dawn. Yeah, I want to make me feel real ill. <laughs> you just look at your own things like just torch the house when I go oh, but you yeah, know we've right. got Charlotte's corset yeah and it's like grimy as I guess you wouldn't like yeah. wash them no would you well like, no because that's got a huge metal rod in it so how would you wash it yeah. I mean dry clean only I would say people should have been wearing like body linens between their skin and their corset yeah so it shouldn't be it shouldn't 
be But there's definitely stern in every underarm ever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's quite it's taken a really dark and it's because we a bit earlier this year we did groups with school children and there were a lot of like I know I'm gonna say a lot of boys they were like teenagers were like yeah. 12 13 14 and I'd get out the car sit and they'd be like oh no do you have Charlotte's knickers with like no <laughs> because she didn't wear any and then they're like oh god <laughs> But there was one lad in one of the groups that was really funny and he was like, I can't remember what he said, but he asked if we had something and then he went, No, does the British Library have it? <laughs> <laughs> that is a sick I know, that's brutal. Yeah, that is. Absolutely brutal. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. But no, I no, no, you're <laughs> Oh, and there's this idea about, sorry, Emily and Bramwell, like, that she somehow understood him how nobody else did. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's going back away from corsets and sweatstones. But this idea that seems to be out there, and I I can never figure out where it is that comes from, which of the Mm -hmm. first biographies kind of put it forward. I watched Talk Invisible, and that's what I got from it. But I think Talk Invisible is kind of, does it in a sensible way of... Emily, you can tell that she's still really frustrated by him, but like, you know, just she's just helping him get by. But there's this idea of Emily as this sort of stalwart sort of lady with a lamp standing yeah. at the end of the lane waiting for him to come home and sort of wiping his fevered brow and getting rid of his sweat yeah. stains. Mm-hmm. People have this idea that she was literally like at the window of a black bull, like, can you come out now, please? <laughs> yeah. Please. We'll that later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't get that sense that that's true. Yeah. But people are desperate but to believe it. There's all these different ideas of it and you put them together and they don't make a sensible person, they don't make a whole yeah. person mm-hmm. and yet somehow people so invested in mm. she was this sort of you know angry non-conformist who also sort of waited around for Bramwell and she did this as Charlotte she did like it, it's a really strange schizophrenic yeah. whole but people mm. are invested in that idea the but only that thing right? we know about for sure is that she was good with dogs mm. yeah huh? is that the well, look, at you. look at you so I for, love those that. for those listening at home we're now showing Liana Buzker's uh, illustration of Emily with Flossie and Keeper it's like Keeper's massive. Love it. It's like I love that. Humongous. Yeah. Yeah. Keeper's like the Hagrid of the dog world. Yeah. 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 That's so true. I want him. You wouldn't punch that, would you? Because that dog is going to take your arm. He would yeah. let you come first, wouldn't he? I like the collars. That, that's good. The collars. Because I like the collars we have. <laughs> oh, I just realised she's sitting like in his kind in of it. waist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got a massive foot. Oh, yeah. He's enormous. <laughs> Boss <laughs> is like a little cat and Foss is I really love cute. that. I'm going to say that's not to scale. That's an interpretation. Yes. Totally realistic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, here's the fact that we do know. She loved dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I it's love good. The honor did a great job. So, Claire, you do a really good job of summarising uh, Gonzo in your book, but can you give us, like, a summary of your summary <laughs> right now okay so uh so gondol uh, as i'm sure like your listeners already know is this imaginary world that emily and anne create when they separate from um charlotte and bramwell and they're kind of joint imaginary world and gondol is this um imaginary island that um is this kind of place that's 
importantly led by women, uh, uh, women rulers, um, and it's this place of kind of real big drama, uh, political intrigues, fighting, and it's just this sprawling saga where um, you have these kind of you know factions and wars and romances um, taking place. And Emily and Anne wrote all the kind of backstories for their characters. It's basically Game of Thrones um, in the 19th century. And um, yeah, we only have fragments of, of Gondol uh, because it was all written in verse. And wherever all of that verse kind of went, if it was Charlotte burning it on a pyre or, or whatever it was, <laughs> we've only got fragments. So we've got this incoherent narrative of these different characters that remain. And we know that Emily kind of had, uh, you know, one particular one, AGA, who was on your kind of flag, yeah. um, who's her kind of main, not main, but one of the leading female protagonists um, and kind of chronicles her life. And, um, yeah, it's really sad that we just don't have a coherent gondol narrative. We just got fragments of what it, it could be. But as you've said, Fanny Ratchford mm-hmm. writes this book, um, you know, Gondol's Queen, a narrative in verse, where she tries to make sense of what we do have and puts together a story. Um, but, yeah, that's essentially Gondol. Do we, do we know that Gondol was a complete thing and that there's stuff missing? Or is it possible that it was written as fragments, like I've had an idea for a scene and it's... They talk, they reference it, don't they? They like say, they reference things that they would have written. Yeah, so we have uh, in their diary papers, Mm -hmm. uh, we've got references to um, when they're um, writing particular backstories or the narratives of particular characters. So it kind of gives an impression that they were, there was some kind of coherence. But you also get a sense that they were kind of doing different things. So at one point, Anne, I think in one of her letters or diary papers, you know, is, is described as, or, or describes herself as writing a particular narrative. And how much they shared that. I mean, we have the kind of, um, the kind of famous story when they went to kind of York and they were in a- acting out mm-hmm. parts of it. Um, so it seems like they were bringing it together. But I'm sure that there are, as you said, kind of, um, other discrete scenes and moments that maybe then that was kind of future ideas or, or d- ideas that didn't fit into a particular part. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to just be like places that opened up this kind of really creative world. Um, but of course, a lot of Emily's poetry, she went through uh, some of the published ones, which she published in, 18, um, in the 1840s. Um, she kind of de-gondled, uh, so took all the gondol references out. Um, and uh, that kind of leaves very different poetry because it's kind of far more fun and exciting to see this kind of these wars and these political fights and these terrible romances. But I like Fanny Ratchford as well for the way in which she gives you these kind of sprawling romances, mm. um, you know, particularly with this AGA character that just kind of is throwing away men and doing all kinds of stuff. And um, yeah, it's fun. She's really likable, AGA. Like, yeah. You know, even when she leaves her infant baby, she's like, you know what? I've got to be a queen, and I can't have a baby at the same time. Sorry. Yeah. Obviously, she could have done something with it, like giving it to someone. Yeah. But you know, yeah, she was ambitious, and that makes a better poem. So. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that it is this kind of female-led world, and that her and Anne are really active in creating that. Mm. I think it tell that tells us a lot about their imaginations and the kind of. Um, you know, the way in which they use literature creatively to kind of play with ideas of power and stuff like that. I sort of, I guess I feel like if I was them and I had Branwell bossing me around and Charlotte, like, you know, banging on about Zamorna, you yeah. would just be like, <laughs> yeah. no, give it a more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, enough already. Yeah, I, I, get, I get that sense as well. And I think probably Branwell's dominance to kind of edit and control so much of mm. those kind of creative worlds that Gondol gave. You know, Emily the, and Anne, that kind of freedom to go, 
yeah, no, you're not part of that. It's that's our world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we decide who does what here, yeah. not you. Um, so yeah. I think the other thing about having female leaders in it is that, as it says in one of the diary papers, they're interested in the fact that Queen Victoria came yes. to the throne, yeah. she's just a year older yeah. than um, no, she's younger than Emily, so yeah. she'd have been like, that lost his queen. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I always think that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I, I agree. And then she called one of her um, geese, didn't she? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it obviously kind of inspired her in some way with like those ideas of kind of leadership. And, mm. and well, I think if you look at the kings that have preceded Victoria <laughs> as well, like that would have been such an exciting, like a real yeah. time of change. Like yeah. not only just like a change of power, but like a change of culture yeah. in the country. And like a lot of people say that Victoria kind of like especially the men around her, like that idea of uh, Victorian like prudishness almost yeah. is because you have this like young virginal mm. queen who's like mm. on the throne and it's a way of like reducing her power, like yeah. the men being like, yeah. she's the child queen, she's yeah. like, you know, she's pure, she's perfect. But then you've got this young girl who's yeah. like And it's such a contrast behind mm, it to the men who'd come before who were such kind of Mm. hedonistic, drunken, mm. gouty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's literally as far the other way as you can possibly go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I, I think you're right. I think and that, that thing that, um, particularly with the character like AGA, who's like not any kind of, you know, traditional female plaything, you know, she's not there to be, you know, a princess as a kind of accessory. You know, she's in there fighting and making decisions and, and speaking back to men and being really active. Um, which must have been really kind of you know empowering for Emily. You can imagine her doing the fist pump every time she writes some kind of <laughs> cool bit of dialogue or kind of moment. She's also as well like not afraid to have her be kind unlikable. of awful and unlikable. Yeah. Whereas yeah. all of the heroines in Angria and Glasstown are quite like they're not like hard to mm-hmm. like because mm-hmm. they're not that. So it should be out by latest early 2020, I hope. How so long did it take you to do those kind of individual? And um, that map is about a... 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's it's quite big. Just a little. Just it's in a tiny, tiny book. No, it's actually A1. It's really big. That one. Oh, good. I was going to ask something real astute. 
I was gonna ask if you do all the colour in any of stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I did. It's really cheap. I did. It's a pain actually. It's like, you know, it's still on. That pen. It kind of is. Oh, okay. Because I do colour, the colouring is, is actually done digitally. It's actually really, it's really not useful to your podcast for us to be describing in detail something that no one on the podcast can see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is like revenge. The amount of podcasts I listen to where they're talking about something I can't see. I'm not, I'm not downloading your podcast app with pictures. I'm not doing that. I think in the edit you also need to describe what you did with the visual gag. Yeah, because it, yeah. it worked really funny <laughs> yeah. that you didn't describe it. I pulled off my Team Austin t-shirt to reveal a Team Bronze t-shirt. It was great, guys. It was so good. Yeah, and you did the crowds went wild, quietly. Live it. I should have like, described it. I'm just pulling off my <laughs> one t-shirt. Yeah. Some more art for you. Oh, some more art that people can't see. So um, this is Laura Newbert, actually, and we had a great discussion about Mothering Heights, which is her favorite book. And her big problem with it is that it's always marketed as a romance. Wow. She's like, oh, I see Heathcliff and Kathy and the Moors embracing. And she's like, if I were going to do a book cover, I would do something along the lines of this. <laughs> so. Yeah. That That's is so true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which leads you perfectly into your next question. So yeah. It's like a plunder or something. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> romance or cautionary tale. Anyone. Anyone on the panel. Cautionary I tale. get so uppity about this. I spend my time destroying the dreams of 15-year-old girls who come in with that mindset of Wuthering Heights is relationship goals and Heathcliff and Kathy are so dreamy and I'm like, no. no. He's a violent, <laughs> sadistic abuser. It's not love. It's obsession and hatred. And yeah, so I would probably err towards the latter. Yeah. yeah. I think it yeah. says a lot that we found an edition where they purposefully made it look like the Twilight books. Yeah. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah like, yeah. you love this. You're gonna love this. <laughs> Controlling men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'll pipe down. Um, yeah, I it irritates me no end that it's become this kind of you've got Lizzie and Darcy mm-hmm. and then you've got Heathcliff mm-hmm. and Kathy. You just sort of think, really? Yeah. Have you? And I think it. You know, we can just blame Lawrence Olivier. It's all his fault you for think being it's so Lawrence Olivier? pretty no. in yeah. 1939 mm-hmm. that everybody suddenly decided. You know, Lawrence Olivier and Samuel Goldwyn of Metro Golden Mayer just created this beautiful kind of, you know, brooding, wounded, stable boy who just needed the love of a good woman to make him all better. Um, and that has, for better or worse, proved more mm-hmm. kind of compelling to the popular culture at large than the actual story, which has got, you know, heavily implied marital rape, domestic violence, mm-hmm. you know... Um, Hanging puppies, you know, that's what you look for in a, in a paramour. Somebody Relationship goals, yeah. yeah. It really depends if it's you're like a cat a... or a dog person. Like, <laughs> yeah, because if you're a cat person, you would be on board with the puppy killing. But reducing Wuthering Heights to a romance is yeah. a way of um, excusing women's writing. It's something mm. that happens to women writers across the board. It isn't mm. just Emily Bronte, where you take out the political aspect, you take out the horror, you take out anything that might be considered problematic or challenging and you, a pink cover. Yeah, you say yeah. this is a romance because there are two characters that fall in love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get uh, you come across sort of critics or it's not often critical writing, it's just sort of bad tabloid writing, you know, sort of attacking Emily for creating a terrible hero. She's not creating a hero. You did that. She mm-hmm. was creating a flawed, compelling character who, you know, you understand but is not a good person. Mm-hmm. And we've done that we've right. made him into you know 
Edward Cullen slash Christian Grace slash my wrists, whatever. You know, we've created this thing around him. Um, so don't attack Emily for what you've done. Right. Good. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm totally, I'm totally with you. I'm on Team Lauren. <laughs> um, I agree. Do you know? And the thing I think as well is the fact that Heathcliff is so in love with Kathy that we're in love with Heathcliff's ideas of love. That, that, you know, I'll do anything for you. I'll always find that kind of, that ever, you know, everything you could want from someone to say is just so, you know, ridiculous. That we forgive every bad thing he does yeah, because he says those it things. Is. And it just says more about our ridiculous ideas of kind of love and idealism and like a Clinton's card than actually what she's showing. I so agree with you. And it's that thing again with like, if Heathcliff had been a woman you'd be like, mm. lock that crazy Bloody lady boiler. up. <laughs> yeah. um, but because he's a man, it's like, oh, he can stand outside her bedroom window and wail. It's and like, he really cries, yeah. 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 So emotionally, touch with his emotional self. The fact that he's unhinged by his emotions makes him passionate. Mm-hmm. And yeah. somebody to be, you know, women are always being told that they're over-emotional, that they're hysterical. I don't think I've ever come across anybody who describes Heathcliff as hysterical, but hello, like, exactly. If, he was, if, he, if it was Cathy mm-hmm. carrying out the behaviours that he... Exhibits, mm. then she would be shrill and hysterical, and all these other words that we I mean, get. She is, though, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Heathcliff takes it one further. You know, the he words, has a puppy. Yeah, the words that we used to describe him and the words we used to describe her <laughs> minimizes his kind of. Shrill and he gets no redemption, like as a character. He doesn't like go on a character journey and come out the end and be a better person. Like he's just. The douche the whole way. Yeah, but yeah, he has that moment when he returns, right, in the in the story, and he's been away for a few years, and it's almost like building up, and there could be a point where he comes back and he's this different person, but it's like, surprise, he he isn't, yeah. he's worse now. He's so much like, worse. He comes yeah. back and it's yeah. like, I've gone pro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but does the bit where he's looking at, is he talking to Nelly, or he's looking at um, Hareton and he's saying, Oh, I could almost be a good person. The only person I kind of, you know, he, he looks at her and he sees Kathy in her, in him. But instead of doing what you might expect from a sort of schlocky gothic narrative and sort of going, oh, and now I'm going to repent and I'm going to become a good person, yeah. he just goes, no, I could be a nice person, but I'm not going to. I'm going to continue my kind of mm. evil genius plan. He just yeah. says, he kind of gestures towards the expected narrative and then just sods off in the other direction. And I think that's really brave as a writer. Yeah. That's what I really respect. What I think is confusing is that the romance, like, slant, you could easily apply that to the second generation narrative. Like, it would have been... that Because that is kind of romantic. And in a way, it would make more sense for them to be like, oh, these kids had this terrible upbringing from this absolutely crazy set of, like, nutty parents who behaved abominably and they came through. That kind of is that plot arc. But no one focuses on that. Mm. Lots of the adaptations just, like... But do you know why I partially think that is? Because if you're looking at Cathy and Hareton, you know, Cathy's younger, Cathy's a dominant force. We don't want to valorise a romantic pairing where the woman's got the power, Mm -hmm. where the woman's got the education, the intellect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't think... I'm such a kind of splash of cold water on all love stories, so I apologise, but... Like I don't think you do take a long time consuming them, though, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think that the the book has a happy ending because what happens? You've got Hareton transplanted from Wuthering Heights to Thrushcross Grange to try and enter a world that he's not familiar with. Well, look how well that ended up for yeah. the first Cathy. Like I don't see that as a story of redemption and the second generation coming through. I just see it as 
well, here we go again, sins of the fathers. Mm-hmm. There's um, a theory that this, the second half of Wuthering Heights was thrown together really quickly because mm-hmm. it was supposed to be a volume each for Wuthering Heights, Agnes Graham and Professor, but when nobody picked up a professor, Emily was like, <laughs> done! Here you go. Second volume. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. No, it's a theory. I mean, it's not true. But, I mean, it could be. It could be. Do any other reason people fall in love with Heathcliff? Wait, 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 wait. Next question. Ah. Why do you think so many ah. people are <laughs> <laughs> So, when I've been speaking to people about this, this idea, because people, I, I think you're right, everyone, like, people seem to, you rather he's Marmite, you love him, or kind of hate him, kind of on the latter. Um, I think people feel sorry for him because mm, you see yeah. all that he goes through, and you see this kid who's bullied, and you see him you know, taken down and be an outcast and, you know, not be in this family unit and then feeling this love that's kind of, you know, really damaging. And people pity him. Yeah. But some people then mistake that for kind of love, I think, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think people are drawn to him for those reasons, that there's a kind of, like, you know, you see the social injustice and you feel sorry for him and you want to do something, uh, but you can't. And you have to, you have to see all the bad shit that happens to him. Um, <laughs> you, but you do. In you have to sit in his house. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like bread. Right. I know. So many. I don't like that. Yeah. 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 What's going on? Gonna be, I'm going to have some sheep back here. <laughs> it's a prop from. Um, I brought it with me. Yeah. Okay. The back of the car. It says, and I don't like. I thought that was someone's name, and I was like, who got Heathcliff carved above their name? It's the 1992 film version of Other Heights with Ray Fine. And um, Juliet Binoche. And that's a prop. Yeah, it's a prop. We're oh. going to pose with that. Yeah. <laughs> we should have some media content. We've got Cassie's around somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> they are part of They are, they've been. Oh, wow. Uh, but know. on the Heathcliff topic, <laughs> um, we do one talk a month each year on different topics, and one of them was who was Heathcliff and why are people interested in him. And when we were drawing up the list, I, I always do one a year, and I was like, that one, that's what I want to do. And then I sat down to do the research and went, oh, good God, what have I let myself in for? Because, like, there is no consensus on who Heathcliff was. Mm-hmm. And I think Wuthering Heights is, in many ways, like the Bible. And bear with me on this one, because you can throw any interpretation at it and it will stick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he can be the, you know, he can be an African slave, he can be, you know, a refugee from the Irish famine, he can be, you know the patriarchy writ large, he can be, you know, class warfare, he can be all of these things, and the story can support them all, um, but you just don't know what he is, and I tried to research that talk, it was fascinating, and I effectively kind of came into this room and just sort of shrugged and went, I don't know, this is what other people have said. Oh, I've um, done talks like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, and the same thing, I went, kind of, I went to Senior Google and went, you know, who was Heathcliff or Heathcliff in Google Images? And literally, the only consensus that people could draw on Heathcliff is that he was brunette. You'll never find, <laughs> wow, you'll never find a fair haired Heathcliff. Um, but I think he's interesting because so much, I'm going to massively generalise here, but a lot of fiction up until this point was quite didactic. Like, you knew how you meant to feel about every single character in the narrative. Um, and you knew that bad things would happen to bad people eventually they get their comeuppance and Heathcliff just does not do that and like Mm. Claire says you understand why he's doing what he's doing you understand why he's making these mistakes willfully why he's pursuing these aims and ends 
because you saw what happened mm. and you saw that he was brutalized and you know all the horrible things he had to go through but it doesn't excuse what he does but mm. you understand it at every point and i think that was maybe kind of a bridge too far for some Victorian mm, readers to yeah. kind of go, I don't know how to reconcile this. And he yeah. kind of gets what he wants at the end. Yeah. He wants to die, and he wants to be, if you believe the little shepherd boy, reunited with Cathy. Mm. He gets it. Yeah. Um, that shouldn't have been what happened in a sort of traditional 19th century narrative. You should have had bad things happen. I'm keeping quiet on Heathcliff, because I, I hear him to people talk about him, I feel like I'm quite like him. And now I'm like, <laughs> that's not But good. you are like him. I can do yes. my romances. Try working with Amy. Yeah. She's just, just, just like sure. so over the place. Brunette, knee-jerk, hostile. <laughs> and we are back. We've cut it in the middle. There's more to come, but you're going to have to wait until next week. Otherwise, it would be a very long episode. So that's it for now. I think it's that true. was a good point to finish at Lauren. I think so too. Um, next week it kind of gets silly too. Like we're at the point where we're all comfortable with each other and just laughing. Okay. Maybe, yeah. I mean, feel free to skip next week. If you, <laughs> if you want the hard hitting facts, you've got them. You've had them. It's done. Yeah. Next week you're just going to, you're just going to laugh and have a good time. Speaking of a good time, got a little announcement. We do, indeed. You want to take this one, Hannah, since you're, you know, Team Austin. Spoiler alert, it's, uh, it's about Jane Austen. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are really, really, really excited to say that we will be returning to the Jane Austen Festival in Louisville, Kentucky, this year. And when we say returning, we're actually, we've got an event at this one. We're not, yeah. like, just stealing people from the sidelines and planning our own kind of covert underground events that run alongside we are in it. We're going to be in the program. The festival theme this year is Northanger Abbey. It's going to take place from Friday, July the 12th to Sunday, July the 14th. And we will have our event on the evening of Friday the 12th. So that's when you want to be there. Absolutely. We're doing a pub quiz. Woo! I'm excited for this one. We're going to be in the big tent, Hannah. The big, big tent. tent. The circus tent. Not as big as I thought it would be, but I think right, that's right. been a recurring theme, right? Right. Right. You so want if a you, giant tent. It's just big. If you love Jane Austen, if you love quizzes, but specific, specifically formatted in a certain way quizzes, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. Um, this is the quiz for you. Oh, if you like quizzes where one of the quiz masters gives you the answers, this is the quiz for you. Isn't that right, Lauren? <laughs> I knew you were gonna bust my balls on this one. Um, I'm gonna tape your mouth shut. (laughs) I'm just gonna be very quiet during this event. Um, I probably won't be as drunk, so that will help. All I'm gonna say is, you know, you might want to revisit some Northanger Abbey, which is the theme, and you might want to watch some period dramas. Those are, you know, for this audience. Come on, that's not a. That's not a hint. It's not a strong hint. Okay, here's my clue. You should read Jane Austen's letters from the year uh, 1801 to 1803. And there's a couple of words which, when you write them backwards and look at them in the mirror, they are the answer Wow! to the quiz. See, you're just giving answers away. That's the answer, yeah. Good luck finding that. So um, I'm really excited to return to Kentucky. We need to get dresses. We need to get outfits, guys. So if you have any suggestions for 
where we should be purchasing some Regency gowns, go ahead and throw those our way. What is it that designers say to people? If anyone wants to dress us in Mm. Regency attire, please throw your gowns our way. Oh, yes. Any Regency advisors or stylists out there, feel free to hit us up on the social medias. Um, One more announcement slash reminder. We are doing our little mini read-along for Work, A Story of Experience. I am throwing the first thread up this week. Um, I think it's just going to be like a free-for-all, Hannah. How about that? Do you want me to break it into chapters or just like... Guys, just get in there, talk about work. I want you complaining about your own work as well. Yeah, I think a free-for-all. I think a free-for-all. I think we're just going to do a free-for-all read-along, you know, talk about the story in general terms. I'll post some questions, um, you know, complain about your jobs in there. That's all good. So check out our Facebook group for that. And um, what is that Facebook group, Hannah? Well, Lauren, before you head to the Facebook group, you can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. And you can find us, as Lauren said, on Facebook by searching Bonnets at Dawn and answering two little questions. And then we'll let you into the group when we know you're not a secret robot. I think I'm a secret robot because I can never change the format in which I deliver our social media. (laughs)